Hello and welcome to another episode of So Here's the Thing. Um, this is the third and final episode in my three-part series with my friend Daniel Carter, who is recently a uh, post-Mormon. He has been in the Mormon faith or had been in the Mormon faith for 32 years and um, about six months ago recently left the Mormon faith. Um, the first two episodes, Daniel walks us through um, what it was like growing up Mormon. Um, he also talks about uh, dispelling some of the myths that go along with being Mormon. Um, and now we're going to be talking about what it's like for him um, outside of the Mormon faith. So thanks for listening and um, welcome back, uh, Daniel. Let's talk about quickly about... Um, um, indoctrination and being so inside the faith. In some religions, um, including, um, I think um, that Charmaine touched on this a bit, um, crimes that are committed, including rape, and that are committed within the faith, stay within the faith. They're not reported. They're not like, you know, yeah. it, it's not like a, we don't talk about it. We just, oh, this person raped this other person. And then there's a whole two witness thing. Go back to episode three of the podcast, I think, and you'll and you'll hear that. But talk talk a little bit about how Mormons um, uh, deal with crimes within their own community. I mean, it's it's <clears throat> similar. Uh, that was part of that podcast resonated with me because of that. Because yeah, if someone does something bad, no matter what it is, mm. they're supposed to go to their bishop, right? They're right. supposed to talk to them and counsel with them and confess their sins and work with the bishop on repentance. And on repentance. On repenting, okay. yes, and changing and forgiveness and all of that good stuff. And it is not encouraged to go to the authorities. It is not encouraged to do any of that. And if the bishop has any questions, there's actually a hotline that they can call that sends them straight to the um, the lawyers that the church has. Mm. Um, and they give them instructions and uh, help them along with that. There's not a, a hotline for members. It's only for the bishops. Mm. But it's it's something that with the internet being a thing now has become more and more exposed. <coughs> Excuse me. You're good. <clears throat> it, are all of these issues of um, sexual harassment or sexual abuse or um let's say you're you're a, you're a member you're a board members. member right uh -huh. and you find out that um i mean i can't imagine who who who's above boards um stake hmm? oh the stake right stake president right so so the stake president has been embezzling mm -hmm. right which is not like a like a, a it's not a person to person crime but it is, it's a crime right yes yeah, so if that was no if that was found out within the church organization yeah. itself most likely, but not necessarily, the stake president would be released from his calling, meaning he would have to step down. But then he would just work with his bishop on, right. on repenting from that sin. It would, I would not assume that it would be reported to authorities. Because then it gets in the press and then there's a stain against the Mormon church. Uh, like, yes. Okay. Very Scientology-esque yeah. in, okay. that, in that yeah. kind of regard. But yeah. like it's... Um, so if the 
say that, yeah, that some teenager um, raped a girl. Then if that was brought to the bishop, it probably would never find its way to the police. It would be, well, sometimes boys are boys and they have a hard time like taking care of these things. And I mean, this isn't good, but we've got to work on forgiving and forgetting and working through this. Like, is it worse for, and uh, let me, let me ask this and I'm trying not to dwell too much on this topic because we have a lot to talk about. Is it, so in that instance, you talked very much about, um, I guess in the last couple of instances, we talked about males committing crimes, right? Mm-hmm. Right? So you, you got a, a teenage male raping a female, right? You got the, um, what is it, what do you call this? The, the state president, who's a man, probably, right? Is. Yes, is, is a man. man. Um, embezzling. What happens if, it, like, is it, is it, I, I mean, I can't imagine, but is it like if a woman cre- uh, commits a crime, whatever the crime is, is she re- reported to the audi- uh, to the authorities more readily? No, she, it's also... It's all kept, it would all be kept pretty much in there, unless there was like threat to life, okay. which is a very sure. <clears throat> HIPAA law sort of a thing. But if there was that sort of thing, more so, yeah, that's going to be reported. But outside of that, so much yeah. is just taken care of within the confines of that and according to Mormon culture and Mormon perspective, which is super, super damaging. Being in this church for 31 years and going all the way through it as a young single adult, like all the way through my 20s and sure. everything— I cannot tell you how many conversations I've had with especially my female friends about just how how messed up they became during their childhood because something happened to them. They went to their bishop to try to work it through and instead it was taught to them to just force it down and put a cap on it and keep So very much like Charmaine's experience. Yes, Um, very much. In some ways ways. better, some ways worse. In her instance she was talking about, there was this whole two witness thing. Well, two witnesses had to have seen it before it to have happened. Yeah, that's not, that's used in other contexts, but not for something like this. Oh, okay. Um, But similar in that way. And it's like all kept within and... Yeah, but even if people are like, um, definitely a man would be believed much more readily than a woman would be, for sure. Mm. Um, and she also talked about very quickly about um, her experience going into the church and being pregnant, right? And now everybody's looking at her like, and, and she's not married, right? Oh, yeah. So everybody's he, looking at her like, oh, that's the unmarried whore. Like, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, well, sex out of marriage. So yeah, here is that. one of <laughs> the craziest. Things taught in the church is that is that adultery or fornication, so sex outside of marital bonds, sure. is the sin next to murder. Uh, that and wait a minute. So you all are going out teaching this as missionaries that this oh, is the yeah. thing. And I believe this wholeheartedly until like a couple, like a few years ago. And people in in in, a in other countries are believing this. Like, oh well, what have I been doing? Like, oh my god. Oh right, yeah, 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 yeah. Wow. Totally. Oh wow. Okay. Go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, and, and but like, 
Can you imagine I, listen, how, I, like, the whole context surrounding imagine. chastity and sexuality within the church is one of the things that, like, I, I, I have the hardest time with because I know the damage it did to me mm. and that I've had to work through mm. and to so many of all of my peers. And, I mean, we have this whole group of people coming into their 30s that are virgins because they've been taught that that sexuality and connecting with people in intimate spaces like that is bad unless you're married. Right. And if that's not going to mess you up personally with your personal self-image, your personal connecting with people, always second-guessing and asking yourself, where's the boundaries? And then especially for women being told that they are the ones that are really supposed to set the boundaries because men just can't hold themselves back and so they've got to help them out. And like they're... That must be more super difficult. And that it's super evil because Mm. it's next to murder. It must be super difficult outside of it because inside of the Mormon faith, it's easier because I'm a virgin, you're a virgin, we're both virgins. Yes. Right. And it's okay. like we understand that there's this shared understanding of, well, this is what the tenants say. So uh, it's kind of sucks. And I feel, you know, my hormones or whatever it is, and I'm feeling kind of some kind of way. But we're on the same. We, we have this shared understanding. Yes. Outside of it. I can't even imagine. Yeah. I cannot imagine. So that like just jumping forward just for a hot second. Sure. That was one of the things that was so difficult for me when leaving is being like, man, I'm going to start dating outside of Mormonism and I'm a 31-year-old virgin, now a 32-year-old virgin. Mm. How does that even work into dating? Because I'm assuming pretty much everyone that I am going to be dating has had sex multiple times. Mm. (laughs) And I'm going to be coming... Well, many, many, many times. I mean, I'm going to be dating 30-plus-year-olds. Yes. And yes. so it's like, I'm going to be coming into this and being, like, totally new and just being like, so this is my experience. Is that too weird? Like, And I, and for me, like, it made me feel so inadequate. I've, I've had some really good experiences and conversations since then within that dating sphere, sure. which has helped immensely. Sure. But man, oh man, so, that is that w- was one of the hardest. That touched to on through. that touched on what I want to talk to, and 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 I don't want to not belabor that point because it's important, yeah. and we'll get back to that. But it touched on growing up Mormon, yeah. right? So let's let's talk about let's hit on a few points of growing up Mormon, right? And one of the things that I wrote down on this list was. What was child Mormon Daniel like? Teenage Mormon, an adult Mormon, right? Yeah. So as a child, you're probably, and and correct me if I'm wrong, you're probably so um, isolated and unself-aware of of who your actual self is because it's all about your family and your church and your faith. Yes? No. Ish. Ish. Keep going. Tell me about that. So the interesting thing about my family is... All of us siblings, we all have... Nine of you. Nine kids, yes. We all have uh, 
pretty independent souls. Mm. Um, and the but the family that we were raised in was very heavily culture oriented. Like our parents pushed that upon us very strongly, and so there was some natural resistance to that, which manifested in different ways. So when you say culture oriented, tell me, explain that. Well, so there are there's a very big difference between doctrine and culture, or doctrine and tradition. So doctrines of the church um, are things where we're pointing at scriptures and we're saying it says right here this is how this is right. or this is how things are. Or, and so you're pointing at scriptures or specific things that prophets said in conference, in our biannual conference. So biannual. Yeah. It's a biannual general conference, 10 hours long. <laughs> yes. It's a beast. <laughs> um, but then there are cultures and traditions, which are the understandings that Mormons have developed along the way that perhaps explain a doctrine or explain a way of how things should be or are and thus are reinforced because of um, because that is what is being taught to each generation along the way. Mm. And so these traditions and cultural things can really mess you up. So you were culture-oriented as opposed to doctrine-oriented as, as a family. I mean, there was definitely doctrine in there right, as well, sure. but the culture and traditions were very, very strong. So, for example, growing up, when my twin and I were given a boombox to share and enjoy... He still says boombox. <laughs> <laughs> then the radio was disconnected because our parents did not wish for us to be listening to any evil music. Secular music, yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So we unscrewed the back and we played with the tuner and we listened to anything we wanted anyway and just set it back to static whenever we were done with it. So we did our thing. We were also raised by our siblings on 80s alternative rock, Mm. like The Cure and Oingo Boingo and Depeche Mode. And and we we grew up knowing all the words of uh, the Tool albums because our siblings listened to Tool through the... Like, so there was this sense of... (coughs) There was a sense of resistance... Um, against culture, but it was, yeah, you're supposed to listen to these kind of things. You're supposed to dress in these kind of ways. You're supposed to... Let me get back to that. Yeah, yeah, it's a whole thing. Um, You're supposed to do these certain things on Sundays or not do certain things on Sundays. Like, a whole huge list of do's and don'ts. One of those things was you're not supposed to drink caffeine, Mm. which is false. That's not a doctrine. That is a tradition and cultural thing. It's a culture that was being used at that time. And is it cultural um, according to your family or cultural according to, like, the Mormon culture? It was cultural according to Mormonism at the time. Okay, okay. Um, Not dating until you're 16. Not a doctrinal thing. It's a very much cultural thing. Okay. Yeah, we are not supposed to date. Tell us about the garments very quickly. Oh, jump to garments. Um, Yes. So garments (laughs) are uh, a special underwear that Mormons wear they it is um it is a symbol for them to be able to remember the covenants that they made in the temple so they receive them they buy them actually when they go into the temple for the first time to do their own ordinance um so one interesting thing about mormons real quick is that once you've gone through the temple the washing anointings endowment sealing all those for yourself 
you start to do it for people who have already passed away. So that's part mm. of the continuing of missionary work mm. is you do it for those who have passed on to give everyone an opportunity. So that's a whole other thing. Wow. But I thought I'd pop that in since I was yeah, hitting yeah. temples. Okay. But garments, yeah. Um, there's a, so there's a specific underwear that you're supposed to wear as a man and as a woman um, at all times. In Mormonism, it said you are, don't have to wear it when you're um, showering, having sex, or sweating a lot. I think those are the three. Yeah, sweating there a might lot. have been. Oh, or swimming. Swimming okay. is the other one. Um, what does it look like? What is it made of? And that's a cultural thing. Those four things are cultural. It's not adult in doctrine. No. If you want to go into that, that's that's a whole other conversation about, well, so what really is our relationship with garments and what does God actually expect? And like there's a whole huge conversation about that. Okay. So but what is the what does the garment look like? What does it feel like? What is it made of? Um it can come in different How many do you have? I don't have any anymore. Well, not you, but I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is your underwear. Yeah. So as many as much underwear as you would have. Oh, jeez. Normally, don't ask me. Then, that, 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 I'm I'm an outlier. Don't ask me. Oh, <laughs> not you. <laughs> I, I got way too much. But yeah. like, yeah. So for for listeners, however much underwear you have, is probably how much garments you would have because okay. you. So you have the typical for nowadays is you have a bottom and you have a top. For a man. For a man. And okay. A woman. Okay. Yep. So you have your bottoms, which are, um, uh, which are typically almost down to your knee, and that's the same with women. If it's a boxer kind of thing. Boxerish, yeah. Okay, but yep. not like a. It's not a full all the way down to your ankle. No, no, it's okay. just to just to your knees. And what is it made of? And um, oh, and then the the top is like a t-shirt. A t-shirt. Okay. Basically, not a tank top. Not a tank top, no. It, it, they <coughs> definitely have um, at least cuffs, if not okay. sleeves. Um, so it can be made of lots of different material. It can be made of like sweat wicking material. It can be um, silky. It can be cotton. It can be polyester. Like there are different types. Is it always white? Yes, unless you're in the military and then you can get green ones. Okay. Which is a whole other. Sure, sure, sure. So, so, so it's one of those things that people, some people know about Mormons. Yes. Um, is that they wear particular undergarments, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's often white. Sometimes it's sheer, right? Uh, I mean, no one's ever really supposed to see them. Okay. Because well, they're supposed to be underneath your clothes. You're right. never supposed to just walk around in them. Right. Oh, okay. So if you were like comfortable at home and a Mormon. Then you could just chill in your garments. That, that seems happens. like a weird thing. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I mean some I don't people know. Cheer in the, chill in their underwear. Yeah, no, I, absolutely. No, well, yeah. But but this but, comes yeah. back around to okay. being within the cultural community. Right. Is that, yeah, I grew up seeing my dad walk around in his garment top all the time. He'd oh, usually have shorts on oh, okay. um, over his bottoms. But yeah, he would just, and like, yeah, I saw my parents in their top garments. I didn't really ever, they usually had on something okay. on the bottom. But like, yeah, and I... Yeah, that wasn't a weird thing. Sure. Um, because it was accepted. It was like, yeah, this is one of our peculiar things, and that's just what Grandpa wears. Or that's and just you're what unique. Dad wears. And yes, we're very unique. Yes. So, yeah. um, child um, Daniel mm-hmm. moves into um, uh, teenage Daniel um, and teenage Mormon, right? Yes. So, 
And Very quickly, let me just say this so, so you can outline your conversation because ultimately we need to get to adult Daniel. Yes. <laughs> um, um, many people, including myself, uh, uh, move uh, when we transition from childhood to teenagehood, uh, it comes with um, a lot of um, challenges, including raging hormones. Oh, yeah. In- including an increased sense of identity, an increased sense of self an increased sense of, um, probably over-increased sense of this is my place in the world and this is how I'm going to make my stamp on it. Um, and a, a, a challenge against authority, right? Particularly your parents. Um, and a, uh, a sense of wonder about the world that is only enhanced by all of the other things that I just said, mm-hmm. and some uh, a, a great sense of your own ability to be totally independent. So, how does that translate to um, teenage Daniel and teenage Mormon Daniel? Yeah, so teenage Mormon Daniel <clears throat> was completely... I mean, in the church. I saw everything through uh, an LDS perspective. Um, So like that whole wonder that you're talking about, uh, about the world and everything, that was very much couched in the eternal perspective that I have discussed. So, I mean, yeah, I had a lot of wonders and wonderings, but it was all through scriptural things and whatnot. Um, The only thing that wasn't was... Um, sexuality, because that was one of the the hard points. Because in my good old generation, we were the cusp of the internet. So it was when I was in my teenage years that the internet became much more accessible, and so that's when pornography became a thing, and so or a much more readily oh yeah, yeah. like yeah, yeah reachable just, thing. Right. So. I, so like I got the priesthood when I was 12 and then I, and so I was doing what, everything which was that what I year? should be, which was what year? Oh, shoot. Uh, 99. Okay. I think just to put in context, the internet was whatever year. Right. And then you're 12 at 1999. So just, yeah. And okay. I, I grew up with, my dad's a computer scientist. So I grew up with computers. Okay. So like we always had whatever sure. was happening Yep, and it was there. So stepping into teenagehood, yeah, I stepped in and I got the priesthood at 12. So I was given purpose. I was given focus. But when I was 14, then I had hormones and no one talked to me about pornography or sexuality. And so I, I found it through pornography. Like I started to, to, uh, feel things and whatnot. I wasn't. Did you masturbate? I wasn't masturbating because I had no idea what it was. Mm. No one had talked to me about that or what any of that was. And I mean, nobody told me about right. masturbation. And, but I, and I remember, figured it out by myself. I remember experimenting a little bit. Yeah, but never, never really going. I think I had enough shame in me mm. that I never actually went down that path. Mm. Interesting. So for me. I know this will probably you didn't talk sound about weird your parents. to people. I mean, not your parents, your siblings. Your siblings, none of you talked about it. Um, or I, your twin. I you had a twin. my twin. Okay. So the two of us 
we're on our journey, but I'm going to talk yeah. about my journey. Sure, sure, sure. Journey. Yes. <laughs> that is not something I asked his permission for. So <laughs> I am talking about my, my journey. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so I, yeah, so that was, but that was something that was told us also was like, you're not supposed to masturbate, but they didn't really tell us like what that was. <laughs> right, right, right. Said not to do it's it. Just some, some work. Uh, right. Okay. But this was one of the most difficult things is that, so I, I mean, and this was soft core porn. I was looking at like girls in bras and stuff. Yeah. Like it was nothing. It was not a thing, but that was all the arousal I had. Like that was all. And so I was in this pit of shame from when I was 14 till I was like 16 and a half. Mm, that sounds about right. I was looking at that stuff and I couldn't talk to anyone about it because all of the young women were being told in their classes that if your man later in life has ever looked at pornography or has a pornography problem, they will destroy your marriage if you marry them. What's the pornography problem? I mean, I don't a, a know. <laughs> in, in Mormonism, a pornography problem is looking at pornography at okay. really at all. Okay. Um, okay. Especially if it's like on a monthly basis or anything. Oh, jeez. So, <laughs> so pornography is um, super, super demonized. And so for me, sure. I was like, well, I'm screwed. Right. Like, You've already done it. You're, I, you're yeah, I'm like, I'm marked. <laughs> right. I can't talk to anyone well, about this. Well, you're not this. black, but yes. <laughs> oh, touche. That was solid. <laughs> Shoot. Anyway, anyway, yes. Anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I felt that my soul was was marked in this way. Yes. That I, I wasn't, I had lost <clears throat> worth. Mm. And... Funny enough, the women were taught the same thing in a different way where if they were taught to avoid sex like the devil, because if you were ever used, so the analogies they would use were like, once gum has been chewed, you don't want to chew it. Like, oh. so you don't ever, like, you don't ever, like, no one <clears throat> wants chewed gum. So mm. you're only supposed to like save yourself for that one person. Or they would say, once a, like, yeah, you can, once a nail is banged into a board, you can pull it out, but the mark is still there. Like, everyone knows that you're marred. Like, oh so there were all of these, like, heavy analogies yeah. on virtue for the women. Which but, but and, and that was, I guess, for men and for men, similar analogy. But how did that translate to masturbation? Because well, if, you, I mean, I don't know. Well, I, I, because masturbation was of the devil. Because it, having any of those... Um, feelings aroused in you mm. like arousal was off limits even in my 20s when i was in the young single adult wards then they yeah, I, I mean they, I they, I, that that was something that me so many people avoided <clears throat> was any sense of arousal so let, let me let, I, I mean i think this is an it's it's a it's a thing not to be like, we're going to move on to the next topic because a lot of people are very curious about it, including myself. And it translates to a lot of other religions, right? It, it, it um, First of all, how is anybody supposed to be able to do anything, right, if they cannot at least experiment? 
right? So let's say, let's just say, That's right? That's point. Well, right, but let's, uh, uh, yeah. I mean, but I get ahead. it, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But let's say that um, Well, I'll put it differently. I'll say it this way. <clears throat> so I'm gay, right? Mm-hmm. When I first decided that I was going to experiment with being gay, right? Um, I eventually had sex with a man. And it was the most awful thing that I have done in my adult life. It was terrible yeah. and awful. And many, many things went wrong. And I was like, oh, this is not for me. And so if, if, yeah, if I had just based my experience based on, based on that, I would never be gay. So it, like I'm, I, I, almost, I almost want them to have taught you how to masturbate in the wrong way. So, that, <laughs> so that, <laughs> I don't know what that is, but like. That would have been genius. <laughs> just for you to be like, oh, this feels terrible. Like, <laughs> I don't want to do this. But the problem with that is. They would not get the power that shame gives. Right. Because if you can shame someone over something, not only can you create a sense of judgment, but there's also monitoring that comes into that. That's the next thing I was going to go to. There's a great power when you can shame something, especially, I mean, that's why sexuality is, if you look at, if you look at lots of cults, sexuality is something they put their finger on. Because if you can get someone in that, you you've got a good hold on them. So you're so uh, I'm gonna say two things, and they're both related. You're a teenager. You are in a house of nine. I assume you were not particularly well off, where you all had your own bedroom, right? We did not. But at this point, a lot of my siblings had moved out, so there oh, were probably okay. like six of us left at home. Okay, well six. But we had we but had a larger room, enough. right? Or six. at this point. I had my own room. We had a fairly large house. Okay. All right. Well, that's, I did not have my own room. And so sometimes. We had a basement, a main floor, and an upstairs. I remember very specifically, like, feeling aroused as a teenager, just because teenagers are aroused. And I'm like, damn it. My, 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 my brother is in the same room that I am. I certainly can't masturbate now. And so that was, I couldn't do it. And so, but I I don't have any sense of. That was not my experience. Oh, is that right? Because I actually... Oh, well, you didn't did, do it anyway. I actually had my own room. Right, but you didn't do it anyway. For my whole teenagers. But yeah, I, I didn't. Right. I looked, at, I looked at things and was aroused that way. Right. But I, I never climaxed. Mm. Like that wasn't... And you never had like wet dreams or anything? I had wet dreams. Yes. Okay. Yes, I had wet dreams, but that was... But then you couldn't tell anybody. You couldn't very, be like, hey, mom, oh, I had a wet dream. No. I mean, not mom, but that. <laughs> so I did not tell my parents about my pornography usage at all mm. until I was leaving on my mission. I don't think I, I mean, I don't, th- well, and you're probably better than me in that way. I, I is, I'm I, sure my mother knew. I felt like I had to come clean. But I <laughs> never, t- I don't. I mean, probably until I was 30 that I ever even admit to my mother that I, that I, <laughs> that I had ever watched porn. But, you know, whatever. So anyway, anyway, not, not to go to, to, well, too much down a front. Uh, but at that path, point, but I, yes. had, I had actually been clean for a long time. So this comes back into my teenagehood. Yes. Mm-hmm. So when I was 16 and a half, then this is when I say that I had my own personal conversion to Mormonism. Mm-hmm. This was the time that... I read the Book of Mormon all the way through. I had already read it a couple times before. How long is it? It's is 531 it? pages. Oh, 
Yeah. Very specific. I mean, (laughs) it's a thing. (laughs) Does it get revised? Like, do people say, oh, there's new pages? No, there are never new pages. The first revision in a really long time was in 2013, where they they made some annotation changes and things like that. Okay. Um, But uh, when I was 16 and a half, that was when I went through my own spiritual... um, development and actual desire to have a relationship with God. So I like read the Book of Mormon like crazy. I prayed about it a lot. And and I received my own testimony, which is a a word that Mormons use for receiving a witness from the spirit that something is true. Mm -hmm. And a lot, and many times that can go against logic, but that is a place of faith where you receive that witness from God. Right. So I received that. When I was 16 and a half, and it changed my life. Like, literally did. Like, I I stopped looking at porn entirely. I became focused on helping others, on loving others. I became a very, a very spiritual person. I became a, I became Peter Priesthood is what they call it. Like, I was the Mormon. So do you think that... I'll say it this way. Um, From the outside looking in and not being raised in your shoes or your faith or anywhere near your state, um, (laughs) um, my coming of age um, at 18 and then much later on um, led me to my sexual self, my sexual identity, gay or not, just my sexual self, right. being very much a part of who I am. So it's hard for me to imagine. It's hard. It, it's not difficult to hear, but it's like uh, an odd juxtaposition to hear that your spiritual self sublimated and or really basically took over your entire sexual being. Completely. My sexual side was locked in a cage mm. and didn't come out at all until into my 20s. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Very much locked away. That's a, and, a, <clears throat> and that's an interesting analogy because that um, implies, um, not implies, basically says it outright that it's still there, but... You you have a key to it, but you have locked it away. It's not like it didn't exist. It was just yeah. you have well, locked it. And there was a good reason for that. Because within Mormonism, you're not supposed to get married before your mission. So one of the cultural oh, teachings. Well. So mission, married, then yes. sex. Yes. Okay. So one of the, the huge cultural teachings was, well, you don't really need to have a girlfriend then before you go on your mission. Because... Mm-hmm. You're like, it's not going to wait around for it oh, or anything gosh. like that. So, Ugh. so like, I went on dates all throughout high school. No, I never, well. I never had a girlfriend. Mm. I, I like barely kissed anyone. Never kissed anyone twice. Mm. Like it. And, but, but two things. When did you go to an all Mormon high school? Um, I knew of two people who weren't Mormon in the high school, and I was actually really good friends with both of them. So, so then that leads to the next question is that it was, it, again, go, going back to the shared understanding, 
it wasn't like you weren't kissing them and they were like, I don't know why he doesn't like me. No. I mean, clearly, they knew that, well, he hasn't gone on his mission. Not so, necessarily. I mean, they, un- they had an understanding of that. Yeah. But I was, to an extent, unusual. There's a whole spectrum of Mormons. Okay. So I would, what I was considered a Peter priesthood because I truly lived what I believed. Mm-hmm. And then there are those who were considered Jack Mormons that... Yeah, they did the Mormon things on Sunday, but they did their own thing on their uh, on their own time. And so, yeah, there were plenty of people who had boyfriends and girlfriends and were messing around and doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah, there was teen pregnancy, and that was very heavily looked down upon. And there, I mean, there was all sorts of stuff. Like, so for um, paralleling, my twin did have girlfriends. Mm. He did go steady for a long time with them. Go steady. Yes. <laughs> so we had very different <clears throat> lives in that regard. Sure. For me, I I built my life around friendships. Mm-hmm. I was I was the best friend to have, uh, especially for and of course I've I've always gotten along better with girls. So, so touch yeah. on this very quickly, and then we'll and then we'll let you finish out teenage thing yeah. and then move to your twenties. Um, Sundays, yeah, Mormons. Only on Sundays, or are there, like, in, in the Jehovah's Witness, they're doing four, five, six Bible studies all over the place. Like, I, I, I forgot to ask you about that earlier. Yeah, you're Mormon all week long. So, I mean, Sunday was three-hour church. <laughs> mm-hmm. You had sacrament meeting, and then you had Sunday school, and then you had um, your priesthood <clears throat> slash Relief Society, which Relief Society is for the women. Okay. So, you had three-hour church on Sunday, which typically had other meetings couched around it, whether it was for whatever calling you had in the church, or if it was like ward choir or service or anything like that. So typically you were interacting with people throughout the day of Sunday. Sometimes you'd have a little bit of time with your family, but a lot of it was visiting other people and sustaining the ward itself. So then Monday was always family home evening. This is a huge program in the church that... Every Monday evening is supposed to be reserved for family to have a spiritual lesson, to have an activity, and to have a a dessert or a game or something. At home. At home. So that was supposed to be family time where you build your family and you teach them gospel principles. So no dates on Mondays? No. No. Mondays are very, yeah. Yeah. Family home meetings on Mondays, yeah. And then for myself, we had Mutual, which is the program for teenagers— on Tuesdays, I think is when we usually had it. So then we would go to the church Tuesday evenings and we would meet with all the men or the women and we would, or like the boys and the girls, and we would do activities together. And then I think it was Wednesdays, we would do Boy Scouts. So then we would meet, we would do Boy Scouts, we'd do all the good stuff. Which is not a, it was just a separate. It's um, not necessarily associated with Mormons. It, in Utah, in it Utah was, was one in the same. Oh, wow. Okay. Like, 2019, this is the final year of Mormon of the LDS Church and Boy Scouts being affiliated with each other. In 2019? Yep. Wow. At the end of this year, they will be done with each other. Interesting. Yeah, and that's after, like, decades. Mm. So, yeah. Um, so, growing up, yes, Scouts and Church were the same. They, they worked the same. Okay. So, I am, I'm an Eagle Scout. Like, I went through the whole thing, did that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we would do that on Wednesdays. Thursdays, sometimes, yeah, you would just hang out with friends. You'd just do schoolwork or whatnot. Maybe a with, date. 
Um, maybe a date if you were 16 or older. Mm, um, yeah. Fridays and Saturdays could be mixed. So that's when you're usually hanging out with your church friends. Maybe you're going on a temple trip on Saturday in the morning and you're going there um, for a few hours and being with people. Or you're doing a service project or you're doing, um, you're visiting with someone. So a lot of extra stuff would happen in those or you're planning and preparing. So one of the things is Saturday is a special day. It's the day we get ready for Sunday. So a lot of times on Saturday, we would prepare for Sunday and then it would start over. So a good three quarters of ish of our days had something church related. Um, one other thing, and then we do, we will move on um, because it was Utah and the hub of uh, Mormonism um, in actual school. Were you all like learning like calculus or were you like, Oh, there's calculus third period. And then fourth period, it's the history of, of Brigham Young. Like, so, yeah, we had what was called release time. So um, in the church, they have, in the church education system, when you are a teenager, there's something called seminary, which is a four-year program where you, in Utah and in some other states like Arizona and Idaho, then they have what is called release time, that during school, you can actually have an hour of that and go to seminary and learn church stuff. So it's actually built into your schedule. Mm, okay. Um, in most other places, it's actually an early morning thing. So that's another thing. You would go to seminary every morning um, at like five o'clock wow. mm. and do that. And then you would go to school. Okay. For people in Utah, you were lucky and you got it as part of school. Okay. Um, so yeah, that was that was something. That was So, so now you're a teenager and you, you um, can't date. You've stopped watching porn. You become a missionary. You become Peter Priesthood. I mean, I could have dated. Well, you well, right. But you, right. in my personal right. perspective, then I didn't. For, and so now you're Peter Priesthood. Yes. You're in your twenties. Um, you're on a mission for two years in Budapest. You said. Yeah, in all of Hungary, but okay. Yeah, the mission was Budapest, Hungary. And you're in. A place with other missionaries. Mm-hmm. You were all in the same boat as you. I said, oh, and there are women missionaries, yes? Yes. So there was about 100 total missionaries in Hungary. Mm-hmm. Um, about 14 of them were women. Oh, wow. Whew. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'll say it this way. You may, may or may not get this reference. It reminds me of, um, or not reminds me, but it evokes an idea of um, sailors who go off to a particular island or wherever, and they're out at sea someplace in the middle of nowhere, and it's all men, and then, like, maybe there's a couple women, and then all of them get super horny, and they're all like, oh, there's the woman over there, wah, wah, wah. Like, I, I can't imagine, like, 86 men competing for the attention. I mean, I don't know, maybe, probably not competing for the attention, but... You know what I'm saying? Like, there's only 14 women, so there's that. But you can't really... I mean, I... I, So let me say it this way. Because you're on a mission, and you can get married after your mission, maybe you start dating somebody, another missionary, on your mission, and then say, oh, well, well, after we're done, 
blah, 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 you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. So there were missionaries on my mission that did get married afterwards and mm. things like that. But dating on your mission would not have been a thing. If you had, you don't you have, have time. No, you don't have time. You would have had to be super secret about it, mm. which some missionaries do. Like there are tons, like the whole gamut of missionary experiences out there. Sure. So I'm just speaking from mine in Hungary. Mm-hmm. But I recognize that there are so many and I could tout, like spout all of them off like anyone else. But in Hungary, then, yeah, there wasn't so much of that. Yes, there was like maybe more intimate conversations happening or them trying to spend a little bit more time together on a P-Day or something like that. What's a P-Day? Uh, preparation day. Okay. So that those happen on Monday in my mission. Um, until 6 p.m., you would be free to do the things that you needed to do to prepare for the rest of the week. And then at 6 p.m., you'd go back out and work from 6 to 9 mm. and then come back in and finish your day and all of that. But, yeah, on missions, you are always in a companionship, so you always have someone else with you. And it's presumably most often a man because— It is always a man. Oh, so a man and a woman can't go together? No, so two, not at all. Okay, and so it's mostly, I guess it's nine sets of women— Right? I mean, seven. Uh, yeah. Oh, if there's 18 women. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, it's 14 women. I'm sorry. Yeah, yes. No, you're good. You're good. Yeah, so there were nine sets, nine companionships of women, um, typically. And then for the men, then, yeah, there were, what, like, there were like 40 Whatever that month. There were like 40-ish. Yeah, 40-ish. Because yeah. mm-hmm. the numbers fluxed, of course. Sure. But, yeah. And so you were always in companionships. Sometimes there was like, a trio if like numbers got skewed or things like that or if people went home or um because they didn't want to stay or because they did something that was totally against the rules or something like that but so three things yeah um one what was the best thing that you saw as a missionary two what was the worst thing that you saw as a missionary and three um this goes back to something i said earlier um Your sense of self, mm-hmm. right? As a missionary and as an adult, because now you are fully realized or... I mean, I'm I mean, 19. I <laughs> right. 19 but, to 21, yeah. Right, but as, right, you're out of your, you're past 16. And presumably, even, I mean, people, some people might argue that even in your 20s, you aren't fully baked, right? Yeah, not until you're 25. Right. Yeah. Um, so, but was your sense of self like... I am completely and totally 110%. I am the next, I'm going to be the next prophet, for lack of a better sort of aspiration. Or or how did you, what was your sense of self? I mean, in a sense, I was super I, confused in my 20s. I saw myself as a superhero, mm. almost, because I was in another land, um, sent there by God, mm. Um I was learning a whole new language. I mean, I learned to speak Hungarian so that I could speak with the people and became fluent in it. And I mean, I was doing, I was doing difficult things and pushing myself through difficult situations and helping bring about miracles all around me. So, I mean, I, I saw myself as being a warrior of God or being an emissary for God. And thus, I was, um, so in Mormonism, one of the things that is talked about is when you go on a mission, a mantle is placed upon you. 
in a symbolic sense that you have the mantle of God and thus God supports you in ways that most people don't. Um, I think the mantle has a lot of responsibility. So it's yes, a, and there's that as well. Yeah. I mean, because uh, technically you have stewardship for all these people that you are teaching. And if you fail, then it's on you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was a it was a big thing, which is interesting because it, depending on who you ask, one might say, "Well, if God placed this mantle on me, if I fail and I'm the steward of God, then He failed. Then God failed. It's not my fault." You know what I'm saying? Some but people might say that. Not so much in Mormonism, at least for mm. for Mormons. Then it was more, I was imperfect, and mm. thus it was my fault that I was not prepared to be able to impart what needed to be done because I wasn't a pure enough vessel. Got it. So it's that whole place of imperfection mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and insecurity. So coming back to your, your questions though, about like the greatest best and thing the, and the worst thing. Yep. The best and the worst. <coughs> For me, um, probably the best thing that I was truly able to see was my own personal development within my relationship with God. Mm. Um, It was on my mission that I 100% came to believe in miracles and that miracles truly existed and could happen in our lives every day and that I could be a conduit for miracles to happen. Um, That was a, a huge focus for me, especially when I came into leadership in my mission, um, which was um, about half of my mission. I was in some form of leadership. And your mission was two years. Two years, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I I did crazy things on my mission. And not crazy in a bad way, crazy in a, holy crap, that actually happened. (coughs) Um, Where... My companion and I would pray and we would say, God, where would you want it? Where do you want us to go today? And God would say, you need to get on the metro and go all the way to the other side of Budapest. Mm. And be like, really? We have meetings here later today. And God would say, yeah, you need to go all the way down there. We'd be like, all right. We'd hop on the metro. We would go, 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 go. An hour later, we would end up at the other side of Budapest. How did you find, I mean, how would you, how were you funded? How did you have money for this? Um, Funding, I saved up quite a bit of money. A lot of people save up money all throughout their teenage years and everything to pay for it. So it's not paid for by the church? No. Oh, okay. I paid, sometimes there are funds that help with it and subsidize it. I helped raise some of the money, but my parents mostly paid for it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's an important point. Yes. Yeah. It is not, not paid for by the church. And you were not paid for it. No, volunteer right. service. Right, volunteer service for two years. Yeah, so um, we went all the way down there, and then we went out and started to just talk to people. And lo and behold, one of our appointments for later in the day called and canceled. And then lo and behold, another one called and canceled. And suddenly, those meetings that we were going to stay up there for were all gone. And we were meeting with people, and we found some people that we really that really needed to talk to us. And we even found this guy that we had talked to... Th- a week ago and didn't know where he had gone and he was down here in the middle of nowhere and we rode the whole metro all the way back up with him and talked with him about God. And like, there were things like this. There was even a time that I I gave a lady a blessing and 
after her eyesight came back. Like, I saw miracles and performed miracles and, and brought the power of God into people's lives. And so for me personally, learning to communicate with God was huge. It transformed me. It also is what helped me not become a typical Mormon missionary. Because most Mormon missionaries, you are taught that you are to meet with someone, you teach them about Joseph Smith, the first vision, like all of this stuff, and then you say, and if you, and if you come to believe that these things are true, will you be baptized? And so you, you go for the kill. In other words, it's a, it's a whole marketing technique of saying this is what you're getting yourself. Like this is what you're trying to work towards. And you plant that seed and then like work towards it. So I tried that for a little bit when it was first taught to me. And I just didn't feel good about it. Even though I was, one of, I was in leadership at the time, I was like, oh, man, like I don't feel authentic. I don't feel like I'm, I'm like trying to actually listen to the person and help them from where they're at. Like, and I felt terrible about it. And so the thing is, is for me, I trusted my relationship with God more than I trusted my mission president. So when I prayed, I would be like, so God, how should I take care of this? Like, what should I do with this? And God would be like, just trust me and just work with me. We're going to be good. And it made a huge difference on my mission because I didn't buy into doing the marketing scheme which is how a lot of missionary work is done and is promoted. And I saw that when I was here in D.C. with my friends when I had some of them meet with missionaries, and it made me furious. And I ripped them apart for it Mm. because I was like, you are not treating my friend as a human being. And I came to realize, holy crap, Like that's what was being taught. But for me... I didn't buy into it, which I, in retrospect, like I didn't realize it so much at the time, but in retrospect, I'm so grateful because I worked with people to help them come to God. And that was it. And were there, was were there, uh, um, and this is a bit of a side note, but it just quickly, uh, um, <clears throat> do you have, did you, or do you have a sense that, um, the culture and or tenets of Mormonism are being taught differently from state to state or region to region. So, for instance, your friends in D.C. may have been taught a different culture and or go for the kill, etc., as opposed to you who were born in the hub, and, you know, and you were raised in the hub of Mormonism and you were taught mm-hmm. different. I mean, I, I don't... So, if it was a different religion, I would say yes, mm-hmm. but not because it's Mormonism. Okay. So, in Mormonism, when you are getting ready for a mission, you go to what is called a missionary training center. And you go there, if it's English-speaking, for three weeks. If it's Hungarian like me, where it's ridiculous, it's 12 weeks. So while you're there, you learn some language, but you also learn how to teach. You learn what to teach. You're given, like, structures and principles and lessons and, like, how to make this all work. And there's flexibility in it, but you're taught how to go about doing things. So mission presidents are taught like it's it's very much a top down thing where the same thing is taught all around and said this is how you approach things go forward and do this yeah you're going to have to put your spin on it and whatnot but this is what you're teaching this is how you do it 
and is put out. So one of the interesting things about Mormonism is uh, they, they hold up that anywhere you go in the world and you go to a Mormon church and you go to a lesson, the same thing will be being taught in that lesson as is being taught in Oregon or is being taught in Utah or is being taught in D.C., that everyone's on the same lesson plan. Everyone has the same material. Everyone is going through the same thing. So there's a great sense of unity and sameness within so, that. Which which leads me to, and something we got away from, leads me to the light. Tell us about the oh, light. Oh, the light. That's right. Go <laughs> light. <clears throat> so the light. Um, a great part of where this term or this thought comes from is actually from the Jerusalem Center. So um, BYU, Brigham Young University in Utah, which is the Mormons' private university there in Utah, they created a, a Jerusalem Center in Jerusalem, obviously, where people could do study abroad and be able to learn all about things. Well, when they were um, working out the political details to create this center... And supposedly, whatever apostle was doing this, um, when they were talking to one of the, the leaders in Jerusalem at the time. How long has it been around? Oh, man. Like a couple it's decades? Been a, it's or been a couple, couple hundred decades. years. No, it's oh, been a couple okay. decades. Okay. Yeah. Um, then, <clears throat> then that leader said, uh, because they were like, you can't be preaching, you can't be doing missionary work, like they were putting down all these things. And then supposedly, the story goes, the, the man said, um, okay, but you can stop doing all these things, but what are you going to do about the light in their eyes? And so that is the story I have heard since I was a wee lad that is one of those things where it's like, yeah, you can tell who a Mormon is because they have that special light in their eyes. And Mormons will say, <coughs> you're good. Mormons will say, that's the Holy Ghost. Because one of the strong claims that Mormons make is that we have the gift of the Holy Ghost. And everyone else just has the Spirit or the light of Christ or whatnot. That the Holy Ghost comes along and touches them every once in a while, but is not a constant companion. But for Mormons, because they have the proper authority of God, they can baptize people properly with authority, so it counts. And they can give them the gift of the Holy Ghost, which means that they have a constant companion with them, which is the Holy Ghost. And that is part of what brings the light in their eyes, is not only that they are doing good and that they are good, pure people, but that the Holy Ghost radiates from them, that that goodness, the light of Christ is radiating from them. And thus, people see it. So, let me, let me ask you yeah. this. Thank you for that explanation. Two things. Actually, just one thing, and then we'll move forward. Um, well, yeah. Um, there's an idea or a concept or a feeling among people who are, um, not religious or not, were not raised religious, mm -hmm. um, that sort of makes them not want to be religious. And the idea is that the religions can't get together on what this thing is, Right. So if I'm Catholic and I think that I uh, have been 
baptized, etc. You know, I've got the 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 Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Ghost, whatever you want to call it, right? And then I go and talk to a Mormon, and the Mormon says, "No, no, no, I've got the Holy Spirit. You don't have it. You've just been touched. You you don't have it every day." And the and the Catholic says, "Well, no, I, listen, I, I this is what I do. I'm I'm with it. So it's it 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 makes." As, as welcoming and as um, embracing and as um, inclusive as religions, including Mormonism, try to be or want to be, aspire to be, that kind of like, we're the only ones, right, who have the proper anointing, as you put it, that kind of thinking makes it be like, okay, well, uh, uh, like, why would I get into, like, how, how, am I, how am I to choose if this one says I'm right and that one says I'm right, if that makes sense? Well, then it sounds like you're just like Joseph Smith. Mm. I mean, then you go to James 1.5, you see that it says that um, if, you, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. So all you need to do is go and pray about it. Right, that's, and if I pray about it, and the and the and the Lord says, "Oh well, you should be a Catholic," then and is that okay with then you? Then it's then it's wrong. Like you're, oh, still, you okay. need to read the Book of Mormon. You need to pray about the. Uh, that is the logic behind it. Mm. Is if you pray, God will tell you that this is the right place to be, mm. and if you get another answer, you must not be doing it right, or it's Satan telling you that. Mm. Okay. There are, and that that is a very I mean, conservative, right? basic yeah. Mormon yeah. perspective. It's sure. not how everyone would go about it or anything like that. But like, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I, it was just as I was listening to it, I'm like, wow, wow. Um, second thing, um, and circling back, what was the what was the least great or worst thing? Right, the least great or worst thing. Let me think through that one for a second. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. While you're thinking about it, I'm going to say it. I'm gonna uh, uh, add some flavor to it or some color to it. Yeah. In that. Um. Some people see people who are ultra religious, or are raised in a particular um, sort of overarching religion as very happy all the time and very sort of oblivious to anything that's bad. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know what I'm saying? So they're, you're totally. all smiling pod people who have no sense of anything that's bad in the world. So as I'm asking you this question, I'm like, I wonder if it's hard for him because he never saw the bad. He would always see the good. No, I definitely saw. You, you, you get where I'm going. Bad, yeah. It's it's more <clears throat> that I'm I'm going through my memories, and I mean, and it was over ten years ago. Sure, but huh? I mean, I definitely do have a lot of the good memories stuck in there because I really did. I I lived my mission the best that I could and like put my whole self into it in so many ways. But I would say, I mean, I'm going to interpret bad as things that I felt not okay with. Um, 
And that really comes down to heavy-handed proselytizing. Mm. Like, I remember that that my companion and I, we had been taught, so this came down from our mission president and was taught to us that we were to, that what constituted a lesson, because it was a numbers game, of course, you had lessons, you had people you talked to, you had investigators, you had baptismal dates, you had baptisms themselves, like all these things, um, that... In order to count something as a lesson, all you had to do was teach a principle and have a prayer. So what we were taught in one of our conferences where we were trained on different things was that when we were talking to people on the streets, we just needed to teach a, a, a principle, any principle that we could to them that they would listen to, and then force them into praying with us. And that in that space, the spirit would have a chance to bear witness to them. And that's a lesson. And that would count as a lesson. So what constitutes taught? If you just tell it, or do I have to repeat it back to you? Um, you if, know what I'm saying? If they hear it, oh, and there's some sort of like back and forth of any sort, okay. and then as long as there's a prayer. So we went out, and I remember doing this for probably a good solid week or so, where we'd kind of corner people. Like we would stop them on oh, the street gosh. and we would teach, we would, we'd be like, Hey, uh, we're missionaries of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, we're going around talking to people about uh, families today because we have a really unique message. Did you about, say the Mormons at that time? Uh, we would usually say church of Jesus Christ. We would say, yeah, the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. We usually wouldn't go around and say, um, with a moment. <laughs> like sometimes we would, but most of the time we would we would say like our church's name. I guess it just it just depended. But say yeah. it in Hungarian for us one more time for the listeners. Azu Toshol Napok Sent Yenek Jesus Christus Echaza. Okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> no, it, uh, uh, it's just fascinating because I hadn't I had not heard that before. So yeah. yes, lovely. <laughs> so we would stop them and we'd say, Hey, we're from the Church of Jesus Christ Latin Saints, talking about families. Um, like, did you know that families could be together forever? And they'd be like, uh, I, I don't know. Like, I hadn't really thought of it. I'd be like, well, this is like an important principle that I know is, is true. I know that this is because uh, I see it in my own family and that we can be together forever. And, and this can bring us a lot of happiness. This is wonderful. And we would like to have a prayer with you right now mm. so that we could. So that's the principle. Just, yeah, so we would, we would like have that little thing and then we'd say, and we'd like to just have a short prayer with you right now that you may receive a witness of of this being true as well. And we would just How fold did our you arms. Teach it to me? You don't teach it to me. <laughs> we would just fold our arms, we'd bow our heads, and we'd be like, Dear Heavenly Father, and we would just go into it and we would hope that they would stay there with us and go wow. through the prayer because of like awkwardness. Mm. And well, so you'd be like 10, 20, 30, like right on the, the, the like yeah, getting them out. Yeah, we would just kind of like pull them along into it. And like we would make those transitions right into prayer without even asking their permission into it. Like mm. we would just like pull them down into wow. the prayer. And <clears throat> then we would finish praying. And then we would see like, do you want to talk more about this? Or like, how did you feel about this? And like, and so it was 
And even and even if they said, oh, go to hell, then it still counts, right? Counts as a lesson. Interesting. Okay. Um, Not go to hell. I mean, I mean, <laughs> so, well, I mean, we had plenty of people tell us to go to hell. <laughs> Lots of them. Um, but that was like, that was a tactic that we were taught to use and that we used for a good solid week because we were zone leaders. Like we were leaders in the mission. And so we had, we had to set a good example and we had to do what our mission president told us. And like, we came to realize we were like, no. Even if the mission president said so. Yeah. So- I, I was very lucky that I had a very aware companion at the time. Both of us were super hard workers and very diligent, but we also were people that we could say that we were God-fearing more than Mm. man-fearing. So for us, we were like, you know what? (coughs) This doesn't feel right, nor does it seem to be working. Let's just try to go by the Spirit because it seems to be the better route. And it's, yeah. So let me ask you this, and then we'll and then we'll probably skip ahead. There's probably a lot more. I'm not probably <laughs> a lot more. Done. A lot more to tell. But let me ask you this because it's one of the things that um, I've asked in 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 other conversations with other people. Mm-hmm. My sense of um, any type of work where you're going out and proselytizing to other people, right? is that you're going to have a lot of slam doors in your face. You're going to have a lot of cursing. You're going to, you may have people like assault you or push you around. Yeah. What, what, or, you know, whatever the thing is, or, you know, say some terrible things. I, to my head, to my mind, to my heart, because I'm this way, that would hurt me more than anything. It, 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 so when you describe the worst thing, well, one of the worst things that happened, it wasn't, that people told you to go to hell. It was the bad, it, like like the 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 uh, the things that you didn't think were right, which is interesting. And 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 just how like did it? Uh, how often did it happen where people would be like, "Okay, I've heard of you all. Like, get out of here. Get out of here." Yeah. <laughs> Regularly, daily, daily. So here's the secret that makes Mormon missionaries so resilient. One, you never really take anything personally mm. um, to an extent. But for the most part... As a missionary have, or as a person? As a, as a missionary. Okay. You have a badge on your chest that says the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Elder Carter on it. And so you are representing an organization. You're representing the church. In that capacity, when people are telling you no... It's deflecting and just hitting the church. Which is in some ways worse though, right? Not really, because you're like, I'm held up by this structure and all you're doing is saying no to God. So it's bad on you. Mm. Like that's, that's where you can come from. It's like you, you are supported by this. So it's not them yelling at you because they don't know you. Right. They're yelling at your message. They're yelling at what you represent. And thus it has nothing to do with you. But isn't that. So you can just keep going. Wouldn't that be, I mean, I don't, from my perspective, wouldn't, isn't that soul wearying that you can't, you get so many no's that you can't get through to like, oh, you know what I'm saying? Does yeah. There are days where that definitely happened. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, oh, there are those days that your soul hurts like crazy 
and you're just like, what am I doing wrong? Why can't I find anyone to listen to us? Like God is supposed to bring me to the people that are ready. What is wrong with me? And so, yeah, it definitely can weigh very heavy on you and be harsh. But, um, but in the end, as a missionary, you are given so many promises through scripture, through words of prophets, through all these different places of how God is going to bless you in your missionary efforts. And you just have to persevere. You mm. just have to keep going. I mean, and you're built up to this since you're a wee lad. So when or less or less, <laughs> but once you're out there, like, yeah, you, at least for me, I like, it would bounce off me and hit, hit the church. And I would just, but isn't your job to protect the church at all costs? No, no, it's not to protect the church. It's to promote it. It mm. is to get those who can to come unto it. And if and, people are going to bash it, that happens. But if they bash it to others, isn't that uh, watering down your message? You know what I'm saying? It can. It's also publicity. So mm. like if you think about South Park doing it's, I had multiple conversations with people on my mission and they stopped to talk to me because of South Park. They would say, oh, there's that episode about, about Joseph Smith. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And there were people we taught because of South Park. So it's like, any publicity is good publicity. Mm. If people are talking about it, that's okay. But funny thing is, our arch nemeses were the Jehovah Witnesses. Really? Because they were the only other ones going door to door, mm. talking to people, and you were battling it out with them. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, they were I would think that that would be like, <laughs> and like almost uh, uh, like, I'm actually surprised in some way. That that it was never like a like a a union. Oh no! Like why wouldn't if you're both trying to accomplish similar things? Because they're get, both cults. Well, <laughs> we'll get to that. But you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah. That you're trying to all, both of you are trying to bring people to God, and you both have many of the same tenets and you values. You can edit out the both cults part. <laughs> <laughs> to actually talk in well, about well, well, I mean, you know, that's, that's, we're about to hop into that in a, in, in a second. Yeah. Anyway, so it's fine. Um, <laughs> but you're both trying to bring people to God in your own way. And you have many, many, many of the same values um, and ideals. Yes, but we both believe that we have exclusive rights well, that's the exclusivity, to the path to right? God. That's the exclusivity part. So we believe that each other are not of God. Mm. Interesting. We believe that we both would not claim that, they, that the that other people are God. good people. We would right. totally okay. say they're good people. But we'd Aren't say they are, misled, they are misled and they are they are confusing people and Everything that they're claiming is just ridiculous. Wow. Like, wow. this whole, like, oh, only a certain number are going to get into heaven? What? Yeah. Or, like, you don't celebrate holidays? That's not in the Bible. Like, right, 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 so, right. I mean, and then they would say <clears throat> the same things about us for right. different things. Right, like, right, there's, right. we like, you you translated the Bible your, to your own way just so you can interpret it how you wanted to? Right, right, right. Come on. And then they would be like, Really? Joseph Smith had, like, the golden plates and didn't show it to anyone? And, like, you only have, like, a few... Like, come on, are you serious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's a thing. I'm, 
you know, the, again, from the outside looking in, it's one of those things where I'm like, listen, the differences aren't that, I mean, I don't know, maybe I just was raised differently. I feel like the differences aren't that stark where you all can't come to a compromise. It's almost like me saying, um, this is a terrible example, but I'm gay, you're straight. Oh my God, like I'm attracted to men and you're attracted to women. We can't be friends. No, the differences are that stuff. We're both people. We're both have some sort of attraction to somebody, so we can still be friends. Like I don't. I mean, I don't know. Right. And but the thing that you do in that, when we're taking it to the religious context, is you minimize the uniqueness that has been so heavily right. pushed. Right. And and that's the that's the hard thing. And I'll definitely get into this when we're talking about my transition out. We talked quite a bit about all of the lovely things and you you described quite a bit quite a bit of loveliness um, when it comes to um, your experience growing up Mormon, your experience um, as a teenager and, and, and young adult as a Mormon, particularly in, in, in missions or your mission, the one mission, I guess it's just the one yeah, although it's, the it's one. In my head, it's like over a couple of years. So it's it like, is over a couple of years. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's like a bunch of missions, but no. Um, it's one, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it seemed, and it, just in listening and in, in our how many hours that we've been talking conversation, you seem to describe it with quite a bit of fondness and quite a bit of love and respect and reverence um, and sort of. Um, well, all of those things. I, I could go on. So the the inquiring minds want to know yeah. what changed. What 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 from from twenty one or so to thirty two, what changed so dramatically that or maybe not so dramatically, I'm sure it wasn't a sudden shift, but like, wh- what was the start of your transition to say, okay, now I'm not going to do this anymore. And when did it begin? I guess, like, what age? Right. So, so the transition, I, I've always been a thinker. Um, my whole family, lots of very intelligent people thinking deep thoughts. And that implies questioning. Yes. Lots of questioning. For me, I didn't question, I did not question the church um, for a long time. I didn't allow myself to. There wasn't reason to because I had all the answers and so I would question other things. And you were insulated by other people who said that the yes, those are the right answers. Yes. So my whole childhood was in Utah. My mission I was surrounded by Mormonism the whole time, even though I was in a completely different country. So I still count that as being insulated. Certainly. The whole time. Absolutely. I came home and then I went to Brigham Young University, Idaho, in Idaho, in Rexburg, Idaho. And thus I was still in a Mormon bubble. It was not until I went to Walt Disney World, actually on an internship, that I had my first glimpse outside. And what happened was, is when I was there. How old were um, you? 
Uh, this was 2010. Mm. So nine years ago. So, so nine uh, years ago. 23. So I was 23. Yeah. So I was 23. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> so when I was there, <clears throat> there were a few things that happened, but the primary thing was I was in the entertainment world. Um, I was doing character performing and... And I was getting to know all of these people who were not Mormon. I mean, there were some Mormons that I I had friendships with there, and I was connected into the community, of course, and would go to church. And But I was making a lot of friends that weren't Mormon, which was a first for me, since the only friends that I had that weren't Mormon were those two from high school. And they respected your Mormonism. They did. And they never said, oh, this is silly or weird or different or No, because they were wrong. the minority. Right. But also because we actually respected each other and enjoyed each other's company. And we were not friends because of our religion. Sure. We were friends because we enjoyed the same geeky things or the same music or the same subjects in school. And yeah, we, sure. had, we had yeah. a wonderful time. And they're still my friends to this day. Mm-hmm. Um, but at Disney, when I got to know people, I realized something that I had never seen before. And that was when I was getting to know them. They wanted to get to know 100% of me. And I realized that when I was at BYU-Idaho, everyone that I was getting to know assumed half of me. Mm, mm. Because of my religion. Because of our shared belief system, they assumed half of who I was. Let me, let, let me just, because this is... This is... Let me, let me sit up for this. Yeah. Because this <laughs> huge. This is, so here's the thing, right? The whole yeah. point of this podcast, not the whole point, because we went down many things and it was a lot, very educational. But I want you to say that the exact point again, because it, it translates across so many things. So here's the thing. Say it for me, Daniel. They assumed half of who I am. And the other people wanted to get to know 100%, 100% of you. Of people outside of my faith. When I would get to know them, when I would talk with them, they would ask honest, sincere, desiring questions to know who I am. Mm. And it blew me away. And did you know who you were? I had a good sense of it. I mean, I was, I was starting into the social work program and things like that. I had, I'd always felt like I had a good sense of myself. Um, I would not say that I knew myself wholly. Sure. There were still parts of me locked away. I mean, I hadn't even... most of us don't. I probably still don't. Yeah. But, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I always had a pretty good sense of self. That was why I was able to even do dance while I was at BYU-Idaho and like pursue that because I was okay with people assuming I was gay. Mm which was a very taboo thing in Mormonism, which is something we probably sure. won't go into. Well, maybe, yeah, maybe, probably we, not. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, we will talk about why you left, and I'm sure that was one of the things yeah, that, that came up. But what, so, they, so the people who wanted to know 100% of you, yeah. and when they wanted to know 100% of you in your Disney internship, yeah. was that scary for you? Or was it, it like, was not. It was exciting. Like exciting. It was, because I, as you know, I am a deep person. I don't sit on the surface, and I haven't since I was a teenager. So when I wasn't dating in my teenage years, 
I was sitting down with people and diving deep into their souls. That's who I am. I would spend my time with my friends whose dad had just committed suicide. And I would spend weeks with her, talking through things and being there for her. I had a friend who went through crazy amounts of surgery and I would go there every day and sit with her and talk with her and be there with her. Like, that was the kind of person that I am. I'm not a shallow, I just want to sit on the surface. So these people wanting to know me meant so much to me. Well, so here's the the question. Um, Here's a question. The the reason I ask why, if it was scary, right? Mm -hmm. Um, I'll, I'll say it this way. I, like you, am, um, in my head, I don't think that I'm deep. I just think that I'm me. And, you know, I just sort of, this is what I do, right? Mm -hmm. But people have described me in that way. But I'm, it's this way. It's from me to you or me to that person. And when I first experienced people wanting to get to know the all, the all of me, it was scary because I was not used to people wanting, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, wanting to see it. Reflecting it in that way. Yeah. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, totally. So that's, that's what I mean. Yes. It yeah. was, it, and it was like, I don't know what to, and I didn't know how to answer it. And so sometimes I would just make stuff up like, oh, well, who, who are you in this way? And I'd be like, uh, because I never analyzed it in, because I was so forward facing, I never was self-reflective. In my and this was in my twenties, yeah. And so it never occurred to me that somebody might want to know what my opinion was. I remember the first time somebody asked me, and it wasn't until I was probably in my twenties um, if I was a Republican or Democrat, and I didn't even know what it was. Like I, I, I knew from history. Like, you know, history class and what, like, what the actual terms meant. But I had never fully analyzed, like, which way I was. Right. And so I just made it up. Like, I, just, <laughs> I remember I just said, oh, I, I, I think I'm a Republican. And the person was like, what? And it was like a big frown face. And I was like, no, I mean a Democrat. And they were like, oh, okay. <laughs> and so then I was like, well, let me, let me like get my shit together and figure out what it, like, which one, which, you know, what I'm, who, what I really am and who I actually am. Mm-hmm. And so it, it sort of forced me to become more self-reflective. Anyway, uh, not to get off topic, the people wanted to know about you and it was freeing and it was exciting, exciting for you. Yeah. Yeah. To have people actually asking into what I believed and whatnot. And it wasn't because I believed differently from Mormonism, but it was because I was nuanced and had developed depth that reached beyond the basic teachings. Mm-hmm. And those things mattered a lot to me and shaped how I thought, shaped how I approached things. Um, and I had thought a lot about those things in the context of um, being different in the Mormon community because I was a dancer and I was doing modern dance. And <coughs> so you were even an outlier in your own community, both because of dance and you were Peter Priesthood or whatever it's called. Yeah. Well, at BYU, Idaho, that wasn't as weird. Oh, okay. Yeah. After the mission, then I stopped being quite as shiny in that way. Mm. Um, but I became a lot more unique because of my, my chosen interests. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a, a fascinating thing. And it was there that I actually, for the first time, um, 
had, it came to a conviction that was against a Mormon claim. And that was in Mormon culture, it, is, it was very heavily taught and still is pretty heavily taught to not date outside of Mormonism. And especially not to marry outside of Mormonism. So that was the first time that I actually came to like a girl who was out, like not a Mormon. And so I prayed to God and was like, God, what do I do about this? I like this girl and she isn't Mormon. And God said, it doesn't matter. You should just go for it. And that was, and the only reason that this had an effect on me was because I trusted God more than I trusted the church. Well, you had been practicing yes. that particular line of questioning to God instead of the uh, uh, mission president. Yeah. Right? You had already been going down that path, so it was already like, oh, well, let me ask God. Let, yeah. not, let me go to my authority, my Mormon authority first. Let me, let, let me just go to the Lord. Hey, Lord. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, and I didn't understand that how unique that was until mm. much later in my life mm. when I was talking with more and more of my friends. Sure. And realizing, holy crap, God and the church are enmeshed for them. They're like almost the same thing. Right. Whereas for me, they were completely separate all the time. So that's something unique in my story. Right. But yeah. So for I, them, so, just just to clarify, okay. for, mm-hmm. just so for them, asking the mission president was tantamount to asking God. It was the yes. same thing. Yes. Same the, with the, like going through the prophet. Right. That is God speaking. Got it. Okay. So when I received the answer, go for it. It's fine. I was like, what? You mean I don't, you mean that this whole thing that has been taught to me about how I'm not supposed to date outside the church is false? And did you, did you, did you question, did you ask him more than once? Were you sure that you had gotten the right right answer? Yes. That's what I'm asking. Because on my mission, I had developed a sense of really great communication pattern with God. Mm -hmm. I Mm -hmm. no longer doubted when if like, it was god speaking right? to me or if it was my my emotions right okay i yeah it was it was a very distinct thing for me okay and so i was like oh that's cool and that was the first time that i was able to say i was able to hold something that was contrary to mormon culture and say this is a thing that i received from god that doesn't line up with what i have been taught and who did you talk to about that um, not many people at that time. <laughs> that was my. Did you end up thing. dating the girl? We almost did, and then for a very long story, it did not work out. So, but we are still dear friends. <laughs> so, so, and I ask that because of your limited, very limited experience dating, mm-hmm. right? As a teenager and young young adult, basically. And also, um, outside in, right? Yeah. I think I said this earlier today, either online or offline. It's hard for me to imagine anyone out of anyone outside of a religion saying, let me break into a religion that's not about, uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, if I'm if I'm non-religious, let's say I'm agnostic, right? And I want, like Daniel, and he's a Mormon. 
I'm not going to be like, hey, Daniel, come be with me, because I already know that the Mormons don't believe that they should be outside of, they, they should date outside of the, their, their faith. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not even going to try it. So some people do though. Well, because there is well, yeah. so there's a so there's a whole Flirt to convert, of, man. It's a thing. What? <laughs> what, did you say? what did you say? Flirt to convert. That's a. It's wait. Explain that because I have a. I have oh, a what it means yes. is that you're Mormon, and you find someone who's not Mormon, and you flirt with them. You become boyfriend, girlfriend, or whatever, and then you say, well, I can only marry if you're Mormon, and thus they convert, and thus you have flirted to convert. So let me just say this to you, <laughs> because I don't think you have a sense of, well, maybe you do. I have no, I, I don't know. But I imagine that you don't have a sense of of the opposite of that. The opposite of that is that there are people out there who specifically seek out Mormons or religious people and say, oh, I'm going to turn this person and make them leave their faith. Yep. And we are taught. This. And I don't, I don't know what the, yeah. maybe it's, I don't know what the, it's not, there's no phrase for it. There's not like flirt to convert, but there's, I'm sure there's something, there's some word yeah. for it. Yeah. And definitely those kind of things are taught to us and oh, so you know about fears it. are built into us to be wary. Mm. Yeah. And so that's why you, you don't date outside the Mormon church. Well, so well, well, that's the thing. So even I, I'm trying to figure out. I feel like it's 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 somewhat. Um, I don't know what the word is. Somewhat uh, not conceded is the wrong word, but close enough to it for Mormons to think that they can flirt to convert, but they will they themselves won't be unconverted or like <laughs> taken out of it. If that makes sense, right? Well. Like, is your I, faith stronger than me being able to, like, turn you on? Like, <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know how yes, else to say it. Because mm. Mormonism has such a strong, strong hold on people. Mm. Like, it really, really does. No, I get that. And, I mean, <clears throat> thus it comes back to my working my way out of the church. Sure, I yes. Mean, well, well, so let's circle back around yeah. to that. Yes. So... Um, after that experience at Disney, just a little bit of eye-opening, um, some of my siblings started to leave the church. So all of them were still in it up until then? Ish. Okay. There were some that were like mm. fence-ish. Uh, one had left when I was a kid. He had ran off and had been the black sheep of the family for Nine a while. siblings. Yeah. Yes. I said that before, but this yes. is whatever episode So one is. of the siblings had left when I was younger, but outside of that, everyone else was in-ish, at least, still. Okay. So it was, yeah, in that later part of my undergrad years that some some of them were actually leaving. And that was hard for me because... And was each one a big deal? Like, I guess the whole family knew about it. Like, Sally's leaving, oh, and yeah. now Michael's leaving, and now so I mean... It was a big deal. Mm. It was a big deal. And they um, didn't do it in secret. I mean, yeah, they all did it in their own way. I mean, when I say yeah. in secret, the it wasn't like they left and the family didn't know. I mean, for some people, it did. they oh, okay. did, and then they told everyone later. Okay. Just like with my own thing, mm-hmm. I left and I didn't tell anyone for three months. Sure. Um, so when they started to leave and I came to know that, the thing is, is, I know that my family members aren't stupid. Right. 
as I was stating before, we're smart people. Mm-hmm. And I knew they weren't just making like Arbitrary rash decisions. decisions. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I, that was my first time having a bit of a faith crisis where I, I was like, well, did, you, did they talk to you about it? Like, this is why I'm mm-hmm. leaving you should too. Or was it like, no, mm. no, it was more, <clears throat> I mean, there was a little bit of conversation here and there. It was more of me being a questioning mind mm. and saying, they're not stupid. So I need to take this seriously. And I did. So they're not stupid. That's one thing. I assume that you also did not believe that they had lost God. I right? don't think that had even crossed my mind. That God right? was it's not like they're them. not stupid and they're not faithless. So what is it like? What's going on? Exactly. Like, right. That It has to be something. Yeah. So that's where I... I had my first um, realigning with my faith Mm. where I went through a lot of things and worked back through them. And what happened was, is I, as I was working along them, I came to this point where logic, which is a highly valued thing in my family and faith came to a crossroads. And I realized then and there that if I just took the logic train and just held on to that the whole way, it would lead me out of the church if I followed just pure logic. But the thing is, is in my life, I had had so many experiences with faith. And it was such a a great power. And I knew that it added a great wealth to my life that I wasn't going to leave I wasn't going to ditch faith. I knew I needed to have both. And so I actually solidified myself into Mormonism. And, but at that time, my mind was opened and broadened. And that is when I started to go on my journey of being a more progressive Mormon, which means, um, so that means that when um, gay marriage was legalized, I stood for it, which was very different from the church. And And there are no, you say there are different levels of the church, not levels, but different um, factions or different. uh, I mean, there are different levels of practice. Yes, there you go. But there are no levels of practice at the time where there were no levels of practice that would allow for gay marriage. Oh, no. I mean, you couldn't get a bishop to marry. Got it. Okay. Same-sex uh, folks. And uh, how long did thing. that progression take, that particular progression? That one took... That one took probably like four years. So you're now you're 23 to 27. Yeah. But um, within that... So it was during that time... So one of the other things that I'll just throw in here with this is oh, actually two things that I think are very important. Um, when I was doing modern dance, I did it through all the levels while I was there. I even went on and did it professionally later on, which is what brought me to DC at Brigham Young University, Idaho Mm -hmm. in my undergrad. (coughs) So while I was doing that, um, I had to encounter, I had to face a lot of things that 
went counter to what I had been taught about chastity and bodies and things like that within the church. Mm -hmm. Because I was rolling all over the place with men and women. Mm -hmm. We were touching each other all over the place. And the thing is, it was beautiful and it was peaceful and it was lovely and it was unifying and it was art art and there was god in it like it was a good place and i was like good golly like what i've been taught about the body is completely wrong mormons don't curse no I'm working on learning to curse. I curse sometimes here and there. Side note, I just uh, because it was I wrote it down, yeah. and I, every time I hear you say something, it makes me smile. Cause I'm like, oh. <laughs> I do curse sometimes, <laughs> but if you want to hear me curse, listeners, I yes, I you have was, an audiobook. Uh, yes, I have an audiobook called The Ruined Man that I narrated on Audible, and I curse like crazy in that book. <laughs> you can go hear me say all the nasty words you want. <laughs> Anyway, anyway, that was a random <laughs> anyway, side note. I heard you say, I was like, oh. Yeah, I have, I've started swearing a little bit more here and there, but it's usually very deliberate. Like, yeah, I, yeah. yeah okay, I so anyway, swear, but, um, let me um, ask you, though. Let me just ask you very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, no. Say your two things. The, the first thing was. Was that bodies are not inherently sexual. Right. And are not of the devil. Like, that we, like. That bodies are beautiful parts of ourselves that can interact in a huge scope of ways and sexuality is such a small part of it. And that the way that we objectify bodies is a construct that man put together and is not inherent within bodies themselves. Mm. And so that was a huge thing that happened there. But then it even came further into nudity because nudity in dance is a thing. And I mean, it's used for symbolism purposes and whatnot. And so for me, I had to confront that since I was in dance so heavily and say, how do I feel about this? And truly think about it and work with it. And I came to the point where I was like, I'm okay with it. This, this is beautiful and fine. And I could, then I came to the understanding of when what when something is pornographic because someone is trying to be inherently sexual to you and that is their intent and when someone is being a body and their intent is something completely different and so those kind of realizations were more of the furthering of myself from the typical cultural dogma or doctrinal dogma of the Mormon church. And those were like little steps. But what were you going to ask? Two questions and it's, they're related. First, I assume that each time, even from the, from the first black sheep of the family, um, each time that one of you left the church, that your parents must have been devastated. Oh, it I mean, was just hard. devastated. Yes. So talk a little bit about that. And then it's, um, it will, you can talk about this on the front end or on the back end. But there's this idea that anybody who is as intellectual as you say your family is, not say, but you, that your family actually is, right? Ultimately, will come to the same conclusion. So how could anybody smart even be in the church at all? They must all be stupid. I mean, that's, I'm not saying that out loud, but you know, you, you understand, the, I understand what you're saying, the yes. logic of yeah. what I'm saying. And so 
walk us through that. Okay. So family first. I'll I'll only touch on this a little bit since that's more their story than my sure, own. Sure, sure, sure. But I mean, yes, it <clears throat> or was. Or uh, maybe I'll put it diff- this way: Was it devastating for you all as siblings? For me, when my when my brother left when I was young, that was very hard for me mm. because I I demonized him in my head. And was right. he disfellowshipped? Like, I mean, could you all not talk to him or was it just like... Okay. Oh, no, we totally could. Okay. Like, all that stuff. Um, but, I mean, I personally, I, I did not want to myself mm. because I, I saw him in so many bad lights. Mm. Um, because of what I was taught was what a good person is and what a bad person yep. is. So that was really, really hard. With my other siblings, I was in a much more open and inquisitive place. So when they started to, I actually like talked with them about things and humanized it. And you're all within two years each. I mean, stair steps, right? Like two years, two years, two years, yeah. two years. Okay. Basically. So you, I mean, you're close enough where it's not like a 20 year old talking to a 12 year old. I mean, it was. I mean, well. My, so my oldest brother is in his forties. Uh, okay. So I mean he's over ten years older than me. So at the so it wasn't the next closest sibling that left. It was a sibling further up yeah, the line. I mean it was yeah. like yeah. popcorn. Got it. Okay. Different places. Yeah. So yeah, I mean it was it was hard for me in that way. And it's definitely been a strain within our family. Um, is it a disconnection? Can you still talk to each other? or We can still talk to each other. Okay. Yes, 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 yes. And that is something, I mean, but it, 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 makes it, it can make it know. hard. Okay. It can make it hard because you've lost some vocabulary and some shared understanding. Mm. And, and it, makes it, it makes it hard. I'll, I'll share some things when I get to the, to the back end yeah. or in the wrap-up stage with that. But as for um, your second question, what was your second question? It's about logic and about oh, inter- right. intellectualism versus like, oh. Yeah. So the thing is, is um, Faith. the other side of all of this is there are a lot of people who speak to the logic and facts surrounding Mormonism. And that is the way that they talk to people about why are you staying here? This, this is not good. But then you have the other side, which are the Mormon apologists, who say, here are all these facts and here are the logics behind them that weave around them that show why these things actually are the way they are Mm. or whatnot. So you have both logic camps going to like doing their own thing and giving you what you wish. So one of the things that is really important to understand and that I am going to get a lot more into later on is the importance of comfort in people's lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because when you have that comfort, life just is wonderful in so many ways. Sometimes it's not so great, but it's something that you understand. Right. And thus you're able to flow with it, you're able to live in it, and it works. And so when something comes and says, hey, I want you to be uncomfortable most people are going to have an aversion to that. They're going to push against it and say, no, thank you. 
And so when we're talking about intellectuals and logic and whatnot, if you're in a system that is that you have been part of and that is a comfortable place for you, you can find a way to make it make sense. Sure. Rationalize it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yep. For some people, they get to a point where they can't, and that's when they break. That's when Or they fall back on faith and just say... Or they fall back on faith and say, I'm just going with it. And there are so many different ways of approaching this. And different people's capacities to hold certain things. I mean, there's someone named Richard Bushman, if you ever want to look him up. He is a very famous Mormon um, historian. <clears throat> and he knows his stuff. He wrote, he wrote the book Rough Stone Rolling, which is a whole book on Joseph Smith and all the stuff that he did. And that man is still a practicing Mormon, a nuanced Mormon, mm. for sure. But he is probably one of the most knowledgeable people on Joseph Smith and all of church history, and is still a practicing Mormon. So, so. it sounds like, it, based on your experience and possibly other experience, uh, other people's experiences, including this Richard, um, what's his last name? Bushman. Bushman. That there is room and faith for nuance. It's not an absolute. Yes. And so, yeah. And so, I ask that because you're going to round out what ultimately made you leave as opposed to stay as a nuanced Mormon. Yes. Go. Mm -hmm. Okay, so up through my 28th year ish, then. I mean, I moved out here to D.C. I was a professional dancer for a while, did grad school, um, really was enveloped in the wonders of D.C. and the great thinking here and everything, and, and really came to, like, sit on my own thoughts. Came, I came to very strongly oppose polygamy. I came to um, be a very strong advocate for LGBTQ folks, even had... Uh, someone that I, I lived with for quite a, while, a long time who was gay and Mormon and went through all of that with him, being there by his side and seeing it. And so, I mean, I, I had my own way of approaching a lot of things, but I was still very practicing Mormon. I was a temple worker. I, I went and officiated the ordinances in the Mormon temples. I wore the garment. I was a leader. I, yes. <laughs> I mean, I assume that's just like a, a basic. Yeah, like, I don't that's... even think about that. <laughs> that is a basic. If you okay. go to the temple, that's something you do. Um, what if you don't wear garments? Like, what happens? Is it like a like a like you're on the naughty list? I guess no one would know. I mean, it's easy to check. People will check, like, see if you have the seam line. Like, oh, there's wow. there's a lot of policing. That's a whole other topic. Yeah. Though. Okay. <laughs> Um, yeah, but so I, I just want to get across. I mean, I was in leadership positions. Yeah. yeah. I, I was teaching gospel doctrine classes, like Sunday school and everything. I was Mormon. Right. And this is still, still in the 28th year. This is 28, 29. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, very much, very much Mormon. So what happened was, um, I came to a point when I was living with some of my friends in uh, the Rockville area here. And I realized that if I wanted to continue to expand myself, I needed to live by myself. 
and that was just an interesting realization that I had. I had no other reason to move. There was no life changes or whatever that were happening. I just wanted to live by myself. And I felt that with God as well. So I moved to Gaithersburg. And the people that you were living with were Mormon. Yes. That make that that's an important distinction. Yes, they yes. were Mormon. Mm-hmm. They were they all had their own nuances with sure. Mormonism. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I I had had Mormon roommates uh pretty much my whole entire life except for when I was being a professional dancer and I lived with women. Got it. And that's a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. But um so when I moved into this place by myself, it was amazing because suddenly I was able to be open and think through things fully, know that my thought process and whatever I was working on wasn't going to be interrupted. And I was really able to take full stock of myself and be like, huh, you're coming up on 30 pretty soon. I, are you happy with where you're at? I was like, well, I mean, to an extent, but there's a lot that's held me back, such as like always living my life as if I had a family, but I don't. I've been single this whole time. Um, And so I didn't make certain decisions. I I thought about doing the foreign service officer test, but I didn't because I didn't want to spend three years away from my family that I didn't have. (laughs) There were all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So... I decided I wanted to expand myself. And so I started to practice meditation and I started to do regular exercise routines. I started to um, get, be more involved in my own self-development. And that led, um, that led to me deciding that I wanted to go to a 10 day meditation retreat. And So along came um, January 2018, and I signed up for it for June. Um, And I didn't know what I was getting. I kind of knew what I was getting myself into. I knew it was going to be intense. I knew it wasn't going to be walk in the park. But I figured it was just going to be something to expand myself and to help myself think about things differently. And where was it? Delaware. Okay. Yeah. You had to pay for it. No, it was free. It was free. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's a whole other thing, but it's sure. it's yeah. a f- really interesting <clears throat> model. I really liked it. Um, if you want to look it up, uh, look up SN Goenka, Vipassana Meditation, and you can see the, the camps. They're, they're all over America. They're really cool. But what was really amazing is I, so I was preparing for it and just kind of doing my own thing and um, and when I finally went, then, I mean, this retreat changed my life completely. Um, without getting into all the details of the retreat itself, it was a 10-day silent meditation retreat. So we didn't speak to anyone the whole entire time. We didn't make eye contact with anyone. We had our cell phones taken away and everything. We didn't have pen and paper. We were just there. We had mealtime set up, so we didn't ever have to coordinate with anyone. Same with like our showering schedules. So it was purely made so that we could do 10 plus hours of meditation a day 
and be taught and instructed in how to do vipassana, how to do uh, apasana, vipassana, and metta meditation. Primarily vipassana meditation, though, which is what Buddha taught. And at the end of every night, we would have discourses by the guru who would teach us for about an hour to an hour and a half. So in this meditation, I, I learned one of the greatest principles. I didn't have good words for it until much later in my, uh, about a year later, I came to finally understand the principles that I learned that day or that week. But what it is, is that, is that there is a ton of growth on the other side of discomfort. So within my time there, that first day, my back was on fire. I had done, I had not sat on a cushion without back support for 10 plus hours before. By the end of that day, my back was hurting. The next day, I was back at it and it was, I mean, it was all sorts of messed up. It was getting naughty and everything. And so by the third day, it was, it was really bad. And there were these little seat things that you could get that had back support. But by the time I was going for it, they were gone. So I was like, well, looks like I'm going to have to learn to do this correctly. And so we, they instituted what was called a strong meditation or strong, yes, a strong sitting meditation where we would sit in the same position for a full hour and, and not move from it while we did our meditation. And so that first time we did that, I grunted through it and it hurt terribly. I mean, my whole body was tensed up, my back was on fire and I made it through the whole hour, but at the very end, suddenly this little light went off and it was like, oh, hey, I don't have to be so tense. I don't have to be reacting to what's happening in my back. And so then later that day, we had another strong sitting meditation. And I went into it and I realized, oh, my body's wanting to tense up because the about 15 minutes in, my back flared up again. And so when I started noticing things flaring up, I would just relax them. And then I'd go back to my scanning. And then I would feel something else tense up. I would relax it and I'd go back to my scanning. And it was amazing, but the pain was still there, just as strong as before. But it didn't arrest my, my focus. It didn't even arrest my body. I was able to keep it, the rest of it relaxed, and I just moved through it, and I was okay. And I made it through. And it just progressed from there, where there were times where the pain would just disappear. Because it became a sensation like everything else, and I realized, I'm okay. And... I can just be with it. I don't have to assign it a good or a bad thing. And so saying all of this, because in passing that threshold and getting to the other side of my discomfort, I unlocked this whole new area of capacity to take in discomfort and to be in it and to be okay in it and to be able to move through it. And so I started to think about all this church stuff and I was taking the principles I was learning from the guru, um, such principles that were so simple as, as love. There was one um, 
teaching he gave us where he was like, so let's look at spiritual leaders. We have Christ, Muhammad, and Buddha. These three men, they taught love to people. Now, when people say they are disciples, a disciple is someone who follows in the footsteps of such and such a person. That is a disciple. A disciple is not a dogma. A disciple is not a a church or a structure or anything like that. A disciple is one who follows in the footsteps of. And so if we're talking about Christ, Christ taught love. Buddha taught love. Muhammad taught love. These were the cores of what they taught. And if you're going to walk as a disciple, walk after them. And he went back to Buddha and said, Buddha never set up a church. Those were people that came along afterwards and said, hmm, I'm going to place a dogma on top of this and we're going to create a structure and bam, here's Buddhism. That was never something Buddha did. Buddha taught universal principles, universal truths that all had access to. Stuff that Jesus was teaching too. That's what Muhammad was teaching too. These universal principles, these cores. So I took these thoughts and in my ponderings and between meditations, I thought a lot. And a whole... And a whole new section of questions that I had never been able to touch opened up to me concerning my faith in Mormonism. It was the first time in my entire life that I could, I could hold in my mind the thought of not being Mormon and be peace, be at peace with it. It was the first time I'd ever been able to even hold that thought in my mind. But when it was there, I was at complete peace and realized that if God led me there, I would be fine and it would be okay. And at that time, it wasn't in my mind that that was what was going to happen. It was more that I had somehow, I had broken that bond or that that constraint that had been over me for 30 years of my life. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Um, I don't want to interrupt you. Fascinating stuff, actually. Um, which is, you see, I haven't said anything because I'm, I'm literally like trying to take it all in. Um, was there guilt associated with it? There's an idea, and, and I'll, I'll say this, um, and then I'll let you respond. There's an idea that among people who are in any type of tight-knit community that is comfortable, whether it's a religion, whether it's a family, whatever it is, that if I leave, I'm leaving my, my loved ones behind. And not only that, but they won't be okay without me. I might be okay. Right. I'm going to be fine, but they might not be. And in a, in a, in a, in your position to put an even a different spin on it for much of your much slash most of your life, you were called to do a specific thing. You were called to 
do a specific thing and be a specific thing from for specific people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Specific might not be the wrong word, the right word, but you get where I'm going. Yeah. Right. You you had a calling to help, and now you've had a conversation or a meditation or whatever it is, whatever you want to call it. I don't want to minimize it by saying whatever you want to call it, but you you understand what I'm saying. And now the people who need you the most don't have you. Not necessarily, because I had, I didn't. So was there? I didn't suddenly. That's what I. Yeah, I I didn't suddenly jump out. Right. It was more that suddenly that fear had no control over me. Mm -hmm. The fear of leaving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because that, and I had no idea that was even there. But that had been holding me there for a long time, that fear. So I didn't feel guilt because kind of the flip of what you're saying, I had served so much. Mm. I'd given 10% of my income my entire life. I had given countless hours. And and, let me just say this. You're not going to see that back. It's not like you put ten percent into savings and no. you're you're gonna you're gonna nope. see it. it's, it's, it's gone. It's gone. Yes, it's very gone. Yes. Um, so the thing is, is like for me, I didn't feel any guilt for it um, because I was at peace because I was I knew God was with me. So that's that's the next question. There's there's an idea that some people have that if they meditate for too long or if they for too long or at all, or if they dwell too much in that space, that they will be brought closer to God, mm-hmm. that they will get into a religion, that they will be meditation will lead to prayer, which will lead to like a specific organized, structured thing with God. And so I think it's a false assumption. Personally. Right, so that's what Personally. I'm saying. So yeah. ultimately, yours was the the opposite, where you were in a structured place and you moved from prayer, to some degree, to meditation. It's it wasn't a direct lineage, but you get where I'm going. Yeah, but I uh, the thing is, is I do still and still then pray regularly, certainly. and also meditate, and also meditate. I, I practice both of them. So talk to, because that's important. It's an, an important distinction. Tell us how you differentiate the two. Um, so prayer, I would say that prayer is a form of meditation in a sense, but it is one that when I pray, I truly believe I'm talking to God mm-hmm. and that God can answer me. And so within that, I when I am praying, I am actually treating it as a conversation. To a different entity. To a different entity. Yes. And when you were meditating, you were and having a I'm, conversation with your with your inner self. No, so meditation, meditation for me is a observation. It's a place of observation of self, of what's happening around. It's not holding something and looking at it. It's just seeing what is moving, seeing what is happening, and and expanding and learning into those places. Like that is much more meditation. And then there is pondering. And pondering is what I was doing 
in my bed at the meditation retreat when I was thinking, when I was putting Mormon, <coughs> uh, Mormon uh, dogmas or principles or doctrines or traditions or cultures or whatever up against the truths that I was learning. So that's how I would differentiate those. Yeah, prayer for me is much more a conversation. Meditation is more of an observation. And pondering is analytical thinking. So you come out of this retreat. You've given us a lot of information. I'm sure there's much more. There is so right. much more. <laughs> you, you come out of this retreat. I know we need to wrap. So you, go. Um, you come out of it and you are not instantly changed, but no, but I went right back to church. You have, you have certainly, you do, you do have some new thoughts. Yes. So what happened within these next months? Cause it was, a, it was actually a year from when I did the meditation retreat to when I left. Okay. So within that time, what had happened in that meditation retreat is suddenly all of these questions that I'd never allowed myself to look at or work on, were suddenly open to me. So over the course of those months, I started to take each one of those down. I would look at it. I would think about it. I would pray about it. I would study about it. And I would come to a decision on it. Most of the time it was, hmm, this isn't something important. Or this isn't true. Or, hmm, I'll keep thinking about this for a bit. And it was, and so it was, I cleared out all of this stuff that I had just let pile up on my shelf mm. for a long time. <clears throat> mm. And so I worked through that. And it came to the point that in April of this year, 2019, that I was baking something. And I came to a realization that I didn't identify as Mormon anymore. And it kind of came out of nowhere. I was like, oh, I guess I've come to that point. But you had not talked to your friends and been like, hey, guys, I'm not really into this. Like, it wasn't that kind of a thing. No, because I was being very Deliberate about intentional about having your own sort yeah. of thing about it. Because it wasn't that I wasn't... Influence. Yeah, it wasn't that I wasn't into it. Mm -hmm. It was that I cared a lot about it. Right. And so I did talk with some people about some of my thoughts and doubts. I wasn't really talking about to anyone about, like, I might leave. Right. Like, that wasn't a thing I was really spreading around because that was a very personal journey for me. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of came to that understanding in April. And then I started into, into hairspray. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which we, we talked about at the very, very beginning. So let me, let yeah. me ask you a couple uh, sort of final, somewhat final, clarifying questions. One, um... When you finally came to your decision, had you talked to other people besides your family who were outside of the faith and they were like, yes, I had the same experience? Or was it very sort of like, did you get advice on how to leave? Like, what did that look like? So in April, when I was having this understanding, then that was during one of our biannual conferences in mm. the church, which was the last one that I saw. And... At that time was when one of my friends um, from back in high school who had left the church actually invited me into a Facebook group that was a secret Facebook group for post-Mormons to be able to talk about things or people who were in a transitionary place. Is that the term, post-Mormon? That's what I like to use and a lot of people like to use. I don't, 
I don't feel like I'm an ex-Mormon in the sense of that being a negative thing. Sure. I feel that I am a post-Mormon in that I have transitioned into my new place. I'll tell you, it's interesting. When you say post-Mormon, I hear post-mortem. Oh, really? Yes, that's what I hear. And so it's very like, oh, oh it's an interesting. Mormon. Yes, it's a it's an interesting sort of way to, that's why I asked it. Because when, when the two are connected in a weird way for me. Like post-Mormon, post-mortem. That, that's all I'm going to say. Yes. I get you. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I did like bring up some things and like talk to some people in that forum and whatnot. Um. I did have a cup, one friend in particular that had left the church a few years before I had that I had been very good friends with throughout this. And so I went to her and talked with her quite a bit mm. and was like, hey, this is happening. And she was very helpful in that. So I did have like a couple people. And was there anybody who tried to convince you to stay? No. Mm. Um, also, I didn't necessarily per- like talk with anyone who was strong, strong in the church because I didn't want to create turmoil. Because for whom? For them. Mm. I knew what I know what it's like you to be in you, their. But shoes. you knew that you were very major decisions, so there was no amount yes. of convincing that was gonna. Because I had gone through this with God, yeah. Like I was in a very solid, peaceful place. I wasn't wondering if I should do it at this right. point. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, I mean, May was my time of understanding that I had spiritual independence and was good. And then June 2nd, I decided um, with God, God came along that morning and was just like, hey, today's the day you're going to be done. So, to walk um, us through that process. The actual, because you did it officially. It wasn't like you just stopped going to. to uh... I did it in an in as official way without actually removing my records. Right. And that is something that I'm still, it might come in a year. It might, right. I, yeah. It's right. a whole other thing. But yeah, so um, I had taken a month off to kind of figure myself out spiritually and create spiritual independence. And so then I was going back to church June 2nd. And that morning when I was getting ready to go, then I, I had a strong feeling that um, that it was going to be my last day, and I talked, to, and so I prayed and talked to God about it, and I was like, "Oh, so this is I'm supposed to talk to my bishop and be done?" And he's like, "Yeah, it's going to be over." And you could have had a close relationship, with, or had had, and still have, I assume, a close relationship with your bishop anyway. Yes, he's right. an amazing person, and I was very lucky. To have him for this. This is actually one of the best wards I'd ever been in. Like, mm. Very loving, very supportive. And so, yeah, I went, I did church and everything. And then I sat down with him and we talked for about an hour and a half. And he asked me deep questions and never tried to testify at me or tell me to stay or anything. He actually, his primary question was, how can I support you in this? which I really appreciated because it meant to me that he saw me as a human and not as a statistic. And so I was able to, to have a really good conversation with him. And then I haven't been back. Two things, a couple things. One, do people who uh, do post-Mormons, 
the post-Mormons um, ever go back? That's the first question. Yes. Um, and then two, um, just to just to clarify, and and you can they can expound upon this. No other religion stole you from Mormonism. Nope. Right. I currently have no religion. Right. Right. Yeah. I have. But you have been you've been exploring other religions. I went to a few just for fun to see them, but that was more out of curiosity. I feel no need within myself to seek out a institution with which to combine myself with. But this is very new for you, right? This is new. I feel like I've jumped into a huge ocean and have so much to explore and swim in. But something, this is something that I feel is very important, is after leaving the Mormon church, my spiritual convictions and beliefs have become more important to me than they ever have before. Mm. That's hard to imagine, considering how... What's, what's it called? Peter Priesthood? Yeah. Is that what's called? Peter Priesthood, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing is, say <coughs> say my, um, my conception of who God is or what God is. Before, I had no problem at all talking about that. And I could give you all the nuances and everything. And if you were like, that's stupid, it wouldn't hurt me because I was basing it off a structure that was holding me up. And so I was like, you can talk it up with that. I mean, look at the scripture. Like I was all about that. Since leaving, I am now standing on my own two feet and whatever I bring to the table in the sense of who God is, what my relationship is with God is all me. It's all my experience and it's all what I have gone through. And is it hard to differentiate them between your own new set of beliefs and what you have been? I imagine it'd be almost impossible to sort of separate the two. What you were? It is not. Oh, primarily because I, I am. I think about things way too much. Um, mainly, it's because I know the Mormon sets of beliefs so well that a I had already started to to create my own before leaving. Um, and so upon stepping out, I already had a personal concept of God that was not shared with Mormonism. And I know what... And so now within my own personal journey with God, whenever I run into something where I say, oh, this concept about God is very particularly Mormon, I take my time with it to figure out if I truly believe it about God or not. So, final wrapping questions, because this is, it's, I wrote it down. Um, Yeah. uh, Give me two things that you have taken, uh, two values and or what have you from, that you have taken from the Mormon church and Mm -hmm. still believe beliefs, tenet, whatever you want to call it, Mm -hmm. and three things that you have established on your own. That's the first thing. Second thing is, um, what would you say to someone who is currently in the Mormon faith who is considering leaving? Okay. 
And then I have one final question. Go ahead. Okay. So two things that I take with me. From Mormonism. From Mormonism. Mm-hmm. One of them is service. Um, that is one thing that, even though it might not be with the right intent all the time, Mormons are taught to serve selflessly. And I think that that is something that is very important. Um, so for me, when, when I see someone in need, I strive to approach that person and help with love and without expectation for reward in return. And I would say that, that Mormonism developed that in me quite significantly, and I appreciate it, and I wish to hold on to that quite a lot. Okay. Um, the other thing is, uh, is m- my connection with the power of God. Um, I have, even though I don't uh, agree with the concept of priesthood that the Mormon church holds, nor that it is strictly for men and not for everyone, um, I do believe that the power of God is available to all people, men, women, everyone. And so for me, I do bring with me that the power of God is an accessible thing that can shape and work within our lives and that we can aid each other with. So, And Mormonism developed that for you. Yes. that And that's a whole other thing that I can go into another time. Sure. But, yes. Okay. And now the three things. Three things that I've personally developed. Outside of Mormonism. Outside of Mormonism. Um, I mean, one of those things is... Um, the capacity to take in more and more discomfort. Mm. I mean, that came from my meditation retreat. That came from my first marathon that I ran in uh, August. Mm. Uh, Those two things have enlarged me greatly and have made me desire more and more because I have learned that on the other side of discomfort is potential and growth that I never knew was there. Mm. And Mormonism never gave me that. Mm. That is something that I have found myself outside of Mormonism. Okay. It's been huge. Um, another thing that I already brought up is uh, this, this deeper clinging to who, to, to my beliefs, my, this, I guess, deeper resonance within myself and the world and everything that is around me that like, I I feel more connected within my relationships. I feel more connected with what I believe and how I approach things. And, and all of those things I feel were enhanced because I left the church Mm. and have grown Mm -hmm. and been more. So that's a second thing. Um, and the third thing is uh, the removal of fears. Mm. Um, the Mormon church crafts so many fears around sexuality and around substances and a lot of other things. But with substances, I want to remove those fears. I don't want to be afraid of coffee, tea, alcohol, tobacco, any of these things. I want to be able to approach them with understanding and to be able to engage in them when I choose to or to not. 
and to not have it be a fear-based thing. And so for me, and (laughs) yes, and sex was a Mm -hmm. huge one. Yeah. Coming around to being open and being like, I'm okay now. Yeah. So it's the releasing of those fears. Um, What would you tell to, to say to someone who was thinking of leaving? I would say that you do not have to do it in the same way as anyone else. Mm. Um, do it in your own way if you are deciding to do it. Um, you also do not have to do it because someone else has done it. Mm. I know lots of people who don't believe in what the church, the church's truth claims, but continue to attend because they need the community. And this comes around to something that I think is an important concept that one of my, my brothers taught to me and helped me understand better. You can look at the church as a technology. That technology, you can plug into it and it can give you a lot. It can also have some harmful effects. And it's up to you to decide if those good things are outweighing the harmful effects and if it's helping you. If that's the case, sure, continue on with it. But I would hope that when you come to the point where that technology is no longer serving you, that you will feel free to leave it. And if you're at that point, come join us. Like there, If you are worried about people uh, supporting you and loving you and being there for you, I have found a wealth of that in the post-Mormon community. There are so many of us who, who just want to support and love each other despite that all of us think differently. Right. All of us believe differently and are in different places, but we all understand where we have all come from and you will be loved and supported here. And come join us if that is what is right for you. Final questions. Um, and then we'll wrap. Um, first, Again, I said this earlier, thank you so much for sharing um, this evening with me at over how many hours that we've gone, yeah, right. <laughs> um, and this evening with my listeners. This has been a, a journey unlike any that I have gone through before, and I want to thank you for that. Um, final thoughts. You know, you shared this evening with me, and I've shared it with you. What would What would you like if there's one thing or two things, however many things that you care to, um, that you hope that people will listen to this and take away from, tell me what that is. And then uh, the last thing is any final thoughts you care to share without any badgering questions. I mean, we can touch on it quickly. I don't know how quick it is, but... I don't know. Do you? So, I mean, I guess the question would be, I asked Charmaine this, and she elected to leave it in. Do you feel like you were part of a cult? And if so, what, what is your definition of a cult? Yeah. So <coughs> it's one of those things that I feel like <coughs> is going to take me time to really own the answer itself, like sure. let it sink in, because it's hard to say that was my experience. But after analyzing it these several months since, I mean, it really looks that way. That 
that that is what I came from. And that's based on logic or emotion or feeling? It's based not only on logic, but also on just looking at my experience against what a cult is, mm. being able to look at things from an outsider's perspective and suddenly realizing, like seeing all the manipulative tactics, the the ways that... Yes, define cult for us for you. So a cult for me is an organization that uh, that exercises power over a people um, through... Fear through obligation, <clears throat> through othering, through um, isolation, mm. through indoctrination, and exploits them in many ways, whether that be through the taking of money, the taking of time, taking of efforts, the um, the utilizing of their forces to go out into the world to gain more followers. There's, there's so many things. Um, I do not personally believe that Joseph Smith is a prophet. And so I do not believe that I do not believe, of course, that this church is what it claims to be. And thus I believe that it is, it, it is not necessarily, doing as much good in the lives of, of people as it claims to be, or as I believed it to be throughout my life. And that's going to be a hard shifting to go through with it. But if there are a few things that I would have people take away with this, one is do not be afraid of discomfort because it is within the enlarging of our capacity for discomfort that we are able to see more and more of the world, more and more of the, what's happening around us. And it gives us a larger capacity to make decisions. And some of those decisions can be painful. That's why you need the capacity for discomfort. But it can change your life for the better. and can bring greater peace and happiness and joy in all sorts of things within your life. It's, it's okay to allow yourself to shift and change from what you have been your whole entire life. It's not a waste. Yeah. Final thoughts. Anything else you want to put out there? Final thoughts.
Yeah, final thought. For me, my final thought is that the more open that you can be within your heart, within your mind, within your soul, the more you're going to find in life. Um, And I know that that can be difficult, especially if you've been scarred or abused in different ways. But there are amazing tools to help us to heal from those things and then to enlarge past them. One of those things for me has been meditation. That has transformed me in a lot of ways. Another thing of that has been dance for me. That's transformed me and healed me and shifted me and changed me. So seek out those things that call and let yourself be healed and enlarge. And there will be a lot of people who will gawk at it, but that's okay because you're going to be in a better place because of it. Well, thank you so much again for um, sharing this evening and these episodes with me. This has been a delight and very emotional for me, actually. So I am going to end this episode by thanking our listeners for listening to another episode of So Here's the Thing. And I am about to hug my friend Daniel. Good night and thank you. Good night. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>